great to see a Purpose Church. Despite the challenges of COVID, our campus has been alive with activity this month. Uh, LA Cares fed 500 people on Friday in our North parking lot. Earlier this month, our outreach teams knocked on the doors of over a thousand homes in the three most densely populated parts of Pomona uh, to pray with people, to ask them what they needed, to invite them to our Easter services. And they're going to return on Saturday to bring gift boxes to over 350 families. Uh, last week, blood donations for City of Hope took place on our campus. And on April 15th, that April 21st, we will be a site for COVID vaccinations. So what an exciting month it has been. You know, speaking of uh, COVID vaccinations, I had a funny thing happen to me on Thursday. I was about to go get my second shot, uh, my second Pfizer shot of vaccination. And I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac, so I was kind of concerned, okay, what kind of reaction am I going to have? Am I going to be able to preach on Sunday? Because I had a bit of a reaction the first shot, so I was wondering, what's it going to be? So I was kind of thinking about this, and Dave East from our church sent me this very important vaccine, vaccine um, notice about your reactions to the second shot that you get. So I was all paying complete attention to this thing that I got on my phone. This happened yesterday and is an important lesson for your age group. A friend had his second dose of the vaccine at the vaccination center. And I was like a few hours from going to get my second um, dose of the vaccine. Afterwards, he began to have blurred vision on the way home. I'm like paying attention to that. When he got home, he called the vaccination center for advice and asked if he should go see a doctor or be hospitalized. He was told not to go to a doctor or to a hospital, but just to return to the vaccination center and pick up his glasses. <laughs> I totally identify with that. So I will make sure I'm not worried about blurred vision because I left my glasses at the vaccination center when I got that second dosage. Now, as a church, we minister to more than 4,000 men, women, and children each week. And our 10 buildings host programs from morning to night, seven days a week. And that's why we're celebrating our 150th anniversary by adding or renovating 74,300 300 square feet that will enable us to reach generations to come with the gospel of Jesus. Now, if you did not receive this packet in the mail, would you please email us at info at purposechurch.com or call the church and we can email or mail you this information. The brochure alone is just worth going over as it talks about the history of our church, where we're at now, the future of our church. It'll get you pumped up about what God has done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. Uh, here at Purpose Church. Now, our Easter offering this year is going to go to uh, our 150th, completely to our 150th campaign. And others have told me uh, how they're using either their tax refunds or stimulus checks in order to help make this happen. And uh, I just ask that you'll pray and say, Lord, what are some creative ways or what are some sacrificial ways uh, that I can contribute and be a part of this so we can see uh, uh, this all come together to position us properly to reach people, uh, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands in the years ahead with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Purpose Church, we've done research on this and Purpose Church has had one of the, what, what we can determine through our research, our church has had one of the 11 most impactful runs 
in American and maybe even world history, the history, the 2,000 year history of the church, one of the 11 most impactful runs in American and maybe even world history, and it's because of sacrifices by people like you, and I praise God so much uh, for your faithfulness. Now, today we're continuing our series from the book of Colossians called Jesus is Greater Than. Uh, Today we're going to talk about Jesus is the Lord of our relationships. It's based on Colossians 3 verse 18 through Colossians chapter 4 verse 1. Now Paul is going to talk about three different sets of relationships. And our very own New Testament scholar, Dr. Carl Tony, here's what he writes about this section uh, from God's Word. He says, Paul is describing a typical first century patriarchal family where the father or the husband is the head of the household and everyone submits to him. Hence, the father is found in every pairing. What's radical about Paul's advice is that he introduces mutuality into this system. But more importantly, and this is often missed, he changes the hierarchy found in human relationships instead to everyone's submission to Christ as the new head of the household. Colossians brings brings together statements of equality, like Colossians 3, verse 11, that Pastor Eric Vasquez uh, taught on last Sunday. With a first century social framework for Christian living, that's what we're looking at today, Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. In those days, the household was the foundation of society. And there was a skepticism about Christians undermining the basic structures of society. So Paul argues that the best household is actually the Christian household with Christ at the center, with Christ as the Lord of our relationships in our household and in our homes. So the first relationship is wives and husbands. Now, I covered much of this when we studied uh, a similar section in 1 Peter last uh, summer. So I'm going to go in different directions today, cover some of the same material that we did back in the summer. But just to summarize what we talked about back in the summer, here is a meme that uh, Kimberly sent to me, and I've been laughing about this for a couple of weeks. Um, When I say I want a biblical wife, what people think I mean is I want a wife who is passive and subservient. What I really mean is, I want a wife who is totally willing to drive a tent spike into a tyrant's head should the opportunity arise. Now, that's a Bible trivia joke, all right? And so you need to read a couple of passages and then come back and, and look at the joke. In this, Ariel Hardy, they, they put a comment here on this in the stream. If you can't handle me at my Judges 4 through 5, you don't deserve me at my Proverbs 31. So in order to get that joke, got to have to do a little homework on it. Read Judges 4 and 5, and then also read Proverbs 31. When I say I want a biblical wife, what people think I mean, I want a wife who is passive and subservient. But what I really mean is I want a wife who is totally willing to drive a tent spike into a tyrant's head should the opportunity arise. And I want you to know I got a wife like that. Now, Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting uh, in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And the overarching principle is found in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the Greek word that is used there and translated as submit is hypotasso 
which means to submit. Paul uses this word 23 different times in his letters. And only three of those times does it refer to husbands and wives. And in the other 20 times, it refers to all kinds of different relationships or submitting uh, to each other. Our young adult, uh, Pastor Corey Myers, writes, you have to look for opportunities to outserve each other. And Miles Monroe, who's an evangelist from the Bahamas, he says, submission is the willingness to give up our right to ourselves, to freely surrender our insistence on having our way all the time. And then that great theologian, former Lakers coach, Phil Jackson once said, good teams become great ones when the members trust each other enough to surrender the me for the we. And that's true in all of our relationships. In in marriage, do we trust ourselves enough? In our friendships, do we trust each other? At work, here at church, do we trust each other enough to surrender the me for the we? Now, we uh, talked about this when we studied uh, 1 Peter towards the beginning of the pandemic, but I want to review some things that we talked about at the beginning of the pandemic because I think we've seen it bear out somewhat during this year, this first year into the COVID pandemic. Uh, Research has discovered that the institution of marriage is declining around the world. And one of the reasons that is happening, uh, Russell Moore uh, says that is happening in his book, The Storm-Tossed Family, is that marriage is increasingly a vehicle of self-actualization rather than a setting for self-sacrifice. Let me repeat that. Marriage is more and more a vehicle for self-actualization. That is, how can I have all my needs met? How can I fully actualize myself and my needs rather than a setting for self-sacrifice? And this is what's called the soulmate model of marriage has replaced the family first model of marriage. That is, if I, in the 7.8 billion people in the world, if I can find that one soulmate out of all the billions of people on planet Earth, they will fulfill my every need, my every fantasy, my every desire will be fulfilled in that that person. And so the soulmate model of marriage has replaced the family first model of marriage. The family first model has been born out during COVID. It's like marriage is a lifeboat, okay? And you're just hanging on for dear life during the storms of this past year. You, you, marriage, the, the family first model of marriage is where you, you just, you, you cling to each other in marriage and in your family life just to survive life together. And you hang on to that lifeboat during the storm and the waves and all that we've gone through in the past year. And so with the soulmate model of marriage, where marriage is all about how can I get my needs met, how can I be self-actualized, Tim Keller says that people are asking too much in the marriage partner. It's too much to expect any one person to fulfill your every desire, your every need. And so when that doesn't happen, because it's impossible for it to happen, disappointment sets into the marriage and many times people uh, give up. Now as a result of that, Uh, Mark Regneris, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Texas, he writes, marriage will increasingly become a, quote, Christian thing, which means the church will bear increasing responsibility for an institution with an uncertain future. And the Christian way of doing marriage, that is mutually submitting to each other, is more and more going to be the only way that marriage works. And so um, Regneris uh, continues Uh, He says, marriage is a vehicle 
for spiritual progress that provides daily, if not hourly, opportunities to exhibit sacrificial incarnational love. Now, more and more, it's going to be mainly Christ followers that are interested in that, all right? Say, hey, you want to get married? Yes, it's, well, it's an excellent vehicle for spiritual progress that gives you daily or regular opportunities to sacrifice and to show incarnational love. And over time, more and more, it's going to mainly be followers of Jesus that are interested in that. Now, I said at the beginning of COVID uh, that I had to admit to you as my church family that uh, COVID had not necessarily provided Kimberly and me with our finest hours of marriage. Boy, that first month of COVID, uh, that, that was not some of our finest moments. But I also said at the beginning of COVID, I also said that what doesn't kill you makes you strong. And uh, we're seeing that borne out as we come into the conclusion of a year into the pandemic. Researchers Elise Alhage and also W. Bradford Wilcox, uh, they write that during the uh, pandemic, they said the soulmate model of marriage will most likely fade and a family first model of marriage will emerge. This family-first marital environment will be stronger, more stable, and more likely to offer a secure harbor for children. Uh, They go on to say, the church is especially well-positioned to play a supportive role in this till death do us part model of marriage, both within the pews and in the broader community. Research for the Institute for Family Studies finds that couples who stay actively involved in their religious communities and pray together are much more likely to enjoy vibrant marriages. Now, our sinful nature fights against this uh, submitted life. Our our sinful nature struggles, wrestles with this uh, whole uh, mutually submitted life that the scriptures uh, talk about. This is from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and, and the fall happened. And God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so the marriage relationship now included an element of of ruling and of desire and of antagonism um, rather than just security and fulfillment. There was this other thing going on, this other antagonism going on. Carol Custis James writes, the noble calling to rule and subdue the earth in God's name was perverted as male and female tried to rule and subdue each other. But when Jesus is the Lord of your relationships, and specifically your marriage, he has the power to replace this rule and subdue prison and has the power to replace that with the freedom to mutually love and submit to each other. Now, the second uh, relational pair uh, in this passage is parents and children. Now, the Holy Spirit has led me in a totally different direction for this section. Um, I will be back for the final section, but for this middle section, I really felt the Holy Spirit leading me in a different direction. Now, you can read the scriptures that are there in your study outline on your own or in your life group, but I'm going to maybe come back to this in in a few weeks and and go over those passages. It fits in a future thing that we're doing in, in a few weeks. But I want to go in a totally different direction for the next few minutes. 
one of the major themes of Colossians has been for us to discern error in the church. This has been a big theme. We've talked about it many times and uh, within the church and even outside of the church. And this past week, Pastor Lisa was talking to me about the new California educational curriculum that just got passed, I believe, on Friday, just a couple of days ago. And as she was talking about this, I thought to myself, you know, our parents at Purpose Church should, should know about this. Uh, so Pastor Lisa, take it away and, and tell us what's going on with California curriculum, even within the last uh, the last 48 hours. Yes, thank you, Glenn. Yeah, this is something that's just really been voted on this week, so it's hot off the press. Well, parenting is for sure one of the most rewarding jobs and also one of the most challenging jobs that we can have. Now, we do our best, right? We throw some prayers up to heaven and ask God to help us cover when we make mistakes. Maybe you've even put a little money aside just for that therapy account that you know that your kids are going to need someday to fix all the mistakes that we've made. Well, as our culture continues to to change and things happen seemingly on a daily basis or overnight, one of the things that followers of Jesus are continually called to do is to evaluate, assess, and pay attention to what's going on in our culture to see if there's anything that's out there that might pull us away from our first love, our first love of Jesus. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are a parent, then likely this is also a principle that you lean into in your parenting strategy. Because parents' job is to prepare our kids for the world in which they are going to live. Now, one of the things that has been in the news just very recently is a new California educational curriculum that has really caught the attention of some folks. Now, this is a new ethnic studies curriculum for high school students that is written as an elective class, and it's meant to help them understand the wide variety of cultural differences, the diversity in people groups that exists. Now, this is all a really good thing. It is a good thing to honor and celebrate the differences in culture and history that we have. It celebrates the uniquenesses of peoples, and it has just an an incredible array of, of talking about and recognizing different people, cultures, diversity. All of this is a very good thing. I mean, after all, America is a melting pot, right? And so having this beautiful array of diversity is something that's always been important in American history. Now, traditionally though, our curriculums don't always reflect this beautifully. They don't always represent this diversity in a really positive way. And so there's a lot of new curriculums that are being written right now in an effort to right this wrong. Now, this curriculum is helpful in writing some of those wrongs because after all, God did create this beautiful array of diversity in us. 
Now, one of the things that this new curriculum has tucked back in an appendix, so it's way in the very back of the curriculum, is a suggested exercise for teachers to do with their students. Now, honestly, teachers may or may not use this because it isn't an appendix, so it's not the core curriculum. It's in the back as recommended, and they're invited to. So if they choose to, they can access this part of the curriculum. And this is where a lot of the concern has landed. Now, in Appendix B of this curriculum, there is a section that presents an opportunity for teachers to lead their students in, uh, it's called an in lock ek affirmation, which includes chanting names to Aztec gods. So this curriculum is something that's going to encourage teachers to use chants and songs, um, really to kind of build unity in the classroom. They're called unifying exercises. And they do this, and, um, but they recognize these Aztec gods. And so this kind of caught my attention. You see, identifying other gods in other cultures is fine. I mean, I don't get upset about my kids reading about Zeus. I mean, that's fine to read about who they are and what they did. It's part of our diverse world and it helps us better understand cultures and history. I mean, the Bible too is actually filled with ways to teach us about different people groups and even their different gods, the gods that they worshiped. Here's the part that's concerning. The part that is concerning is asking students to repeat the names of these Aztec gods over and over and then attach requests to that, asking these gods to bring change into these kids' lives. You see, this is traditionally understood to be prayer language. Now, prayer language in all faiths, in all cultures, in all religions is naming a name of a God and communicating by humans with a sacred or a a holy power. It It is calling upon supernatural powers to intervene in one's life. Now, we may read stories or watch movies about Zeus, but we're not calling upon Zeus's name for power to help us. You see, as Christians, we pray to the God of the Bible. We believe in one God represented in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We know this as the Trinity. Now, the Trinity sometimes can be hard to understand. I like to think about it like water. H2O. It is always the same, hydrogen and oxygen, but it kind of can be seen in different ways. I can drink water. I can have water as a solid, ice cubes, or I can put water in a humidifier and and it vaporizes. It can take three different forms, but it still remains H2O. And this is how we can understand the Trinity or our God. One God with three persons. You see, much of the Bible is written to help people understand that as we follow this one true God, that we need to be careful about false gods or other gods that are out there. That we have to be careful of traditions and cultures that prey upon or trust in other gods. See, trusting other gods is very offensive to our God. 
He says that he is a jealous God. In fact, he made it the first commandment out of the big 10. You will have no other gods before me. He says, my name is so important. Don't take it in vain. Don't mess around with it. Don't use it in jokes. Don't say things like, oh my God. He wants the name of him to be revered and honored as holy. So, Here's what I want to do. I want to show you just a few lines from this appendix of this suggested exercise and, and why it kind of raised some concern. Okay, here we go. So this is part of Appendix B, and I put the lines here so you can check it out for yourself. And it has the name of this god. Um, the way you say it is XIP. X-I-P Totec. And so they have the kids say this name four times. They're going to say it. And then they attach that to these kinds of ideas, these words. Transformation, liberation, education, emancipation, imagination, revitalization, liberation. Transformation, decolonization, liberation, education, emancipation. And it goes on in line 222 to say, changing our situation in this human transformation, the source of strength that allows us to transform and renew. And in 224, we must have the strength to shed naive or self-sabotaging views. Then in line 225, it goes on to say, which may hinder us or hold us back more than we ever knew. Then I skip down for a few lines. It says, giving thanks daily, giving thanks daily. This is an Aztec word for blessing. And then in line 230, it says, healing and transformation as we're e evolving in this universe, universe of Hunabku, which is the Aztec creator god. So you can you see that there's some very specific language that they're encouraging students to use. Now, I've talked with some parents about this, many parents actually. Some of parents are very much in favor of this as representing diversity. Others are concerned that it is singing to or chanting to other gods. Now, the state has determined that this practice is not religious, but it's rather cultural and ethnic cultural and ethnic history. So for me, this is a little bit frustrating because I love multiple cultures and, and ethnicities. I love the food. I love the fashion. I love the art. I love the stories. I love the music. I'm not good at languages, but I love all these different things. And as a Jesus follower, I love seeing the ways that Jesus can be seen in different cultural traditions. I mean, I love being in Southern California. It's one of the reasons Carl and I have chosen to raise our kids here because we love the diversity that is here. But as I'm also committed to being a follower of Jesus, and I want to invite you to do the same because I truly believe that following Jesus makes us better at life and Jesus makes our life better. See, God warns us to be very careful about dabbling in ideologies that involve any kind of false gods. We are warned to stay away from things like horoscopes and witchcraft and fortune tellers and tarot cards and Ouija boards, a whole list of these things because they empower supernatural influences other than God to help us bring change into our lives. And it's not because God doesn't value diversity. God loves diversity, but it's because God knows these things are dangerous for us. They expose us to false gods that the enemy uses. 
You see, calling upon a, a, a false god is like opening the front door of your house and inviting Satan to come in and not only come in, but stay a while. And you sit down with him and you watch what he wants to watch on Netflix and you scroll on your phone and you look at what Satan wants to look at. And then you start looking at and talking to people the way Satan sees them as a liar and as a deceiver and as someone who wants death and destruction. See, it's not always obvious though, because Satan is very smart and he is very clever. And he can cover these things under the ideology of cultural religious practices. And he can even have them be honored as cultural traditions. I mean, this is tricky stuff, right? And that's just how Satan is. He can sneak up on you when you're not looking. Now, at this point, this is not a mandatory curriculum, and so your students will not necessarily have to endure these kinds of things. It's going to be left up to each school district to determine if they want to use this. And like I said, it's in an appendix, so it may never get used, but it's there and it could be. So what do we do as parents to help our kids navigate things like this? Well, they could participate But that's not what a Christ follower should do. And so we need to prepare our kids for this. We need to help them know that they should never participate in naming a false God. We need to warn them about this. Now, they don't need to stage a full-on protest, but they can sit quietly and not participate, not say that name. Better yet, they can call upon the name of Jesus. They can pray. They can say a scripture verse. They can empower the name of Jesus rather than a false God. And this is something that will serve them well, not only for this curriculum, but any curriculum that they may face, whether it's in middle school, junior high, high school, or college, or even in the work environment to come. You know, one parent told me, frankly, I don't have the time to be aware of this. And I get it. It's hard to stay on top of all of this. But as parents, I want to encourage you to lean into resources that can help you, that do the legwork for you so that you have resources so that you can be discerning and you can help your kids have no other gods except the name of Jesus. So I've got some free resources. If it would be helpful to you, I want just to collect some of those. I put them up on my website. You can go to lisatoney.com resources, and there you can pick them up if that would be something that would be helpful and a blessing to you. Let me just end with this scripture verse, and it says in 1 John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out in this world. Wow, thank you, Pastor Lisa. My goodness, very concerning, but very, very helpful, and so grateful for that. Uh, So now we come to the third and final relationship set. There's wives and husbands, uh, then there's parents and children, and now the third and final one is slaves, or today we would apply it as employees, and masters, we would apply it today as employers. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire in the first century was not always the horrific, horrific evil uh, that uh, slavery was in, in America, in our country. It was somewhere between that evil and today's employer or employee relationship. Some historians believe that half of the Roman Empire were slaves and half were free, that it was like 50-50 within the Roman Empire. As we're going to see, the preaching of the gospel eventually brought down the institution of slavery. 
But you ask the question, why didn't Paul more forcefully speak against it uh, here in the book of Colossians? And Warren Wearsby uh, writes about this. He says, why didn't the church of that day openly oppose slavery and seek to destroy it? For one thing, the church was a minority group that had no political power to change an institution that was built into the social order. Paul was careful to instruct Christian slaves to secure their freedom if they could, as in 1 Corinthians 7.21, but he did not advocate rebellion or the overthrow of the existing order. Now, I was thinking about how that applied uh, today with uh, the whole struggle of how to deal with governmental COVID regulations that we've had uh, as a church over the past year. And I've heard people criticize churches like ours uh, at the beginning of COVID that went completely online. Um, and, and they were critical of that uh, because we went completely online in order to comply with government regulations concerning COVID. But then I found it interesting because you look at the church in China that changed their worship services, changed their, uh, the way they worshiped or how or in the locale that they did uh, by going uh, underground. And yet God tremendously blessed that and they experienced explosive growth uh, during that time. Uh, then we went on to, uh, from just online to online plus having only outdoor services. And, and people kind of inferred that it wasn't a real worship service if it wasn't indoors. And, uh, and yet many, and I thought about this, many churches in Africa meet outdoors all the time. And God experiences, uh, God blesses them for that. And so God is not limited to one form of, of way to connect with each other in worship and, and in fellowship. Uh, by the way, I've heard that some pastors are using 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 to say that it's uh, not biblical to wear a mask. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Now, I just want you to know, as your pastor, I want to tell you, that verse is being co taken completely, completely out of context if uh, anybody tries to apply it to today's uh, mask uh, regulations. Uh, it's like one of my Super Bowl verses that I do every Super Bowl to support different teams. It's taken completely out of context. Uh, but on the other hand, if we can use that verse, <laughs> we can use uh, this verse to support our masks while mobile guideline uh, that we're going to use at the 1 p.m., the one in the afternoon service. These are the guidelines on Easter Sunday. Exodus 34, verse 33, when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence, okay, when he went to the, to the church service, to speak with him, he removed the veil and then put it back on again when he came out. So he had the veil on when he went into the, the, the before the Lord in the service and uh, it took it off when he was in the service and then put it back on when he was out. Now, of course, I'm being facetious. I think both that verse and the previous one from Corinthians, the one from Exodus and Corinthians, both of those are taken out of context uh, with regard to this uh, particular issue. Now, Paul planted the seeds to eliminate slavery in the book of Philemon. Basically, an, an entire of the 66 books of the Bible, one entire book of the Bible is devoted to eliminating uh, slavery. And it was eventually applied in that way. Uh, it's to our shame 
and disgrace when it has not always been applied that way uh, within the body of Christ and within the church. And down through history, uh, the ugly sin of slavery has reared its head again and again. But here are the seeds in the little book of Philemon. Uh, Verse 8, therefore, Paul is writing about uh, to Philemon, a slave owner, about Onesimus, who was a slave that he owned. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, that is to free the slave, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while he was in uh, while he was in chains, and then moving on to, down into verse fifteen, he says, "Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in Christ." And so very clearly the seeds are, are sown for the elimination of slavery. Uh, from this, this passage we just read comes that line in O Holy Night, O Holy Night, uh, where it says, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, in the name of Jesus, all oppression shall cease. Uh, we'll see next week in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, that Onesimus was one of the men who uh, carried the letter of Colossians to the city of Colossae. Uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as Christians uh, grew to have more influence in the Roman Empire, Uh, Slavery was eventually eradicated, but as we know, it kept raising its ugly head again and again. But in the Roman Empire, eventually, uh, it did fall under the influence of Christianity. Rodney Stark is one of the greatest historians in the world today, with his specialty being of this Roman Empire period of history. He says all classical societies were slave societies. Both Plato and Aristotle were slave owners, as were most free residents of Greek city-states. In fact, all known societies have been slave societies. Amid this universal slavery, only one civilization ever rejected human bondage, and that was Christendom. Uh, So let's finish up by reading Colossians 3.22 through Colossians 4, verse 1. But let's apply it uh, to today's relationships, uh, employee relationship uh, with an employer. And that, let's apply this as we just, I'm just going to read through it without commentary. But think of how it applies in the workplace. He says, uh, slaves or employees, obey your employers and everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That should be our attitude in the workplace. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Your boss is not your boss. Ultimately, Jesus is your boss, even in the workplace. Not for human masters or for human employers. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And then to employers, those of you that are employers, Provide your employees with what is right and fair because you know that you also have 
a master in heaven. Ultimately, everybody, employers and employees, are ultimately responsible to Jesus and Jesus alone. So let's close our time now uh, by praying together. Lord, would you help us to remember that we have a master in heaven? That's our ultimate leader, our Lord, our King. Help us to do whatever we do this week uh, in, in our job, at school, wherever we are in our relationships, working with all of our heart as working for the Lord, not for people, but working for the Lord, realizing it is the Lord Christ that we are serving. And thank you that when we do that, we will one day receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Jesus, would you please be the Lord of our relationships. And we pray this in your name and all God's family, wherever you are, said together, amen.